Welcome to the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I'm your host, Josiah. On today's episode, I sit down with both of my co-hosts and have a roundtable discussion in response to the first of three traditional pastors we are talking to about this whole Gorilla Pastor thing. If you missed it, be sure to go back and listen to Pastor Craig Laughlin's interview. It's a two-parter, and it's all about coping with change. We wrapped up our time together with an open-ended question all about the future of ministry, of how we should better prepare pastors for a church tomorrow that doesn't yet exist. With statements like these, it's also important to define church. And for the sake of this conversation, when we say church, what we mean is those gathered, but more specifically, how they gather. If our speculations are right, then we will have less and less traditional Sunday morning-focused congregations. So you can see why there is a tension in wrestling with these questions of what to do when we currently are preparing our pastors for something that may no longer exist by the time they're ready to step into those ministry roles. So join us today as we wrestle with what it looks like to prepare our ministries for an unknown future on the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. I noticed was that Christians could not have conversation with each other if they disagreed with one another. It's all about entering in to the textured presence of lived lives. And so the, the sanitation of it just broke for me. Like, church can't be sanitized. I always feel like I'm not what people think of when they think of a pastor. I went to school for youth ministry and have now figured out how to do like construction work. It's good good stuff. The church is struggling and declining in ways that we've never experienced in the United States and Canada right now. We have to like allow ourselves to embrace new ways of being in a place. Insurgent revolutions, i.e. guerrilla warfare, is 20% bullets and 80% blessing the people. How do we be eternally faithful? Like literally, like how do we be faithful in a way today that in 20 years, people aren't going, he was evil. Why are we so afraid? We believe that God is at work in all places, in all people, at all times. That is amazing and that should give us hope. We are the Gorilla Pastors. Join us as we explore a world of ministry founded on subversive presence. As Brian Wardlaw and Ryan Fasani and I all sat down to wrestle with what it looks like to prepare pastors for an unknown ministry future, a couple things kept coming up. One is sort of an elephant in the room. Pastoring can be generational, and we all have kids. Between us, there are 10 possible next generation pastors, and this speaks nothing of whether or not we want that to happen. It's just purely an observation based in statistics. So as we wrestled with what it looks like to better prepare our future pastors for a church that will look nothing like it does today, we also, in the back of our minds, were wrestling with what would we do to better coach our children 
into stepping into these roles. The three of us all started off the same way, seeking to start our ministry journey off by getting a traditional education. But would we want our children to do that as well? Or is there a better option that will help them have flexibility? And before we get to this roundtable discussion, just a very clarifying disclaimer. We don't pretend to have all the answers, but we know these are questions that need to be asked. So without further ado, here is our roundtable discussion all about what does it look like to better prepare our pastors for a ministry that's going to look a little bit different tomorrow than it does today. Yeah, so I think I think theoretically on education is I I do think and and I'm I'm just basing it on my experience and then people hearing people's stories of it is if you don't jump in at some point and start trying to live into it um then you'll never learn it. Uh, I, I just, I don't know. I think, I think when we try to, exp- we try to create new imaginations conceptually without the practice, then what we do is we just then take the new and compare it to the existing or the old, uh, whatever, the traditional, whatever you want to call it, which is, is ends up being deconstruction with no movement. Um, does that make sense? And so, and we, and I, I know for us, we just, we just started just almost, it became very negative atmosphere because all we could do was talk about dreaming of what the kingdom of God and participating in that could look like, and then comparing it to the, to what we were in. And at some point we just had to go, okay, stop. What does it mean to jump in and start? And then uh, I think Ryan, you, you pulled it out of me when you were interviewing me about uh kind of my story at the homestead and stuff but it just became where you start to learn you start to listen you start to and you start to reflect on you you know your theological education and and all that 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 it starts to come in and 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 really a new imagination becomes more than it becomes reality and not that it's perfect i don't think it's ever going to be perfect but but we, you start to find the good practices. And we, we ended up coming back to some things that we had left behind um, because we realized, oh, wow, those, those practices, the, the concept of the community is important to everyone. Uh, and so we found that we started having people wanted to have gatherings. Even if they weren't faith gatherings, they wanted to have gatherings. Uh, and so we'd get questions where, on things. So anyway, I just think practice allows you to come around and, and come back to the things that are important from whatever you're leaving, um, but it also helps you to reflect on new practices. Um, and so, and that becomes the, the education. Can I, can I ask a follow-up to that? Um, Craig basically said, we need someone in a faith community, however the church gathers, whatever it looks like, you know, whether it's a subversive ministry gathering, whether it's a neighborhood thing, whether it's a Sunday morning, someone needs to have theological training. And so it sounds like what you're telling me, so help me clarify this, uh, that you can still have the same, maybe almost identical training that you had, because this is where you are as a person. And then the imagination is cultivated from actually living it out. So on one hand, it sounds like maybe it doesn't really need to change, 
is that are you saying that that's possible that the future of the church can can be bright and we can have broader imaginations and really little changes at the academic level to prepare pastors for that man uh everyone's journey is so different right i mean i i I think i do i think from the education standpoint i don't spend a lot of time thinking about education uh especially academically um so but it heavily influenced me and so uh and gave me the base to to stay to stand on uh, i guess uh, because it 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 whittled down a lot of the junk and gave me a, the, the the pillars to stand on i think um that then um yeah so i i would i i am, i'm i still think the education piece if, again going to your personal if my kid um i would push them towards some definite definite education uh You might just offer some more diverse practical experiences on top of that educational piece or what? Yeah. I mean, my, and my kids have, have had it. Uh, I think, I think, I, th- I think even for, for if, again, if it's my kids, they're not getting the experience and education or Sunday school, bad education that most kids in the church are getting. Uh, so in, in some ways, if they got went and got some theological education, they would understand the bet, better why we do what we do, um, why our family lives some lives some because it's not different to them; it's just normal. Uh, so, so it calls uh, back. It calls back to your interview with Fasani, where you said this is a generational shift that needs to take place. That yeah, it, that it probably even starts in the home for the next generation of pastors to just be given a different imagination from birth. Yeah, yeah, and I could speak to that. I, yeah, if I would let me let me I I'm taking up all the time right now, but let me just say this. I think within my own kids, like I was talking about this with a friend of mine, and we were lamenting. We were, actually we were trying to figure out if we should be lamenting <laughs> um, our kids not getting because him and I grew up in the church. We were raised in the church in youth groups, and then we went to a Nazarene school, and then a seminary all that kind of stuff. And so we were trying to say within our experiences, what are our kids missing out on that are that were good, that were very formational for us, that allowed us to get to the place where we were confident to dream and, and things like that. Um, and so we were, and, and there's a fear in that. There's, there's a fear that we may be screwing up our kids. But I do think we also could be setting the platform where our kids don't have to work out of the the boxes that we that that I don't know if I want to say boxes um, because I think the boxes developmentally it's good they they talk about it it's good to have boxes it's easier to work out of a box than into one um, and so uh, and so but yeah so there there's some fear of are we giving them enough of a box and are is and 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 are the pieces that we're trying to put in there with them the good ones that allow them to go forward or and and so is there enough death of the old but not so much that they just walk away from everything 
Was there a conclusion before uh, we keep interrupting? Ryan needs to share in a minute, but like, was there a conclusion to whether you should lament or not and what you should be lamenting if there was something to lament? I like, I like, this is how I, I joke around about it. There is lamenting with hope. <laughs> so there's, I'm not in control and that is for sure. Uh, and so I'm lamenting what I don't know and what was good for me and that my kids don't have some of that. Um, but I'm very hopeful that God cares about them much more than I do. Uh, and will, and as long as they keep their hearts tender to them, uh, that they'll, their path will be their path. <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing uh, because there are so many facets to the conversation about <clears throat> educational reform as it relates to pedagogical styles, uh, classroom experience, and common goals. And when you add the entire theological piece, it's like you're ch all you're doing is compounding the complexity of the conversation, right? So to answer the question, should theological is theological education valuable how should it be reformed and changed to better serve future leaders of the church like you must at least admit this is almost an infinitely complex conversation and whatever i utter is just at best tangentially touching the behemoth of all of it however i've never been shy to tangentially take a stab at a solution <laughs> let's hear it i remember asking a professor somewhere along the line why it was necessary that i needed to be in seven years of theological education that would be four years of undergraduate education where I got a bachelor, a couple bachelors, but the one pertinent to our conversation is a bachelor, uh, bachelor's degree in philosophy and theology. Um, and then a graduate degree, graduate professional degree, degree from a divinity school, <clears throat> an MDiv. And that was a sum total of seven years plus summer school. That's a lot of school. And he told me, there's two ways to answer that, Ryan. Probably said Mr. Fasani, given the, the, my memory of this professor. There's two ways to answer that, Mr. Fasani. One is, that's nowhere nearly long enough. And the other is, it probably should be half as long, but we expect the theological educational institutions to do the work that the church never did well. In other words, Half of the time of theological education is just discipling people, is raising them in maturity and how to embody the, the ancient practices of the church that some of, some of the students have never even heard of. To, to spend time not just intellectually, you know, uh, transmitting the concept of the liturgical year, but teaching them to incorporate into the rhythms of their lives to teach them how to read the Bible. I mean, you would think that that's something you would, growing up in the church, would know it, it would be second nature, but it's not. 
And then we spend two or three years in graduate education, or excuse me, in theological education, learning how the Bible works, right? And so <clears throat> in one way, uh, we, we have to, we're forced to answer the question, how do we liberate theological education from the work of the church or, and or, how do we embrace that theological education is a disciple, an ex, you know, is, is beholden with the responsibility of discipleship, and then what do we do about it? And those are completely two trajectories of the conversation. I happen to think that it, theological education shouldn't be responsible for that, right? Um, I want to press pause there and just point two things out. Bring it back to the group, and then we'll and we'll work and, and then see what you guys have to have to say about that, about both of them. The first is in the form of a question: Is Wikipedia accurate? It, I'm I, it, I'm serious. Is Wikipedia accurate? I'll take a stab at an answer. I think the school of thought is if the sources are cited thoroughly enough and, and verifiable, then people will assume maybe it's accurate solely based on sourcing of, of you know, scholarly journals or articles or whatever the case may be. But I don't think that's the right label to, I mean, is, is, is Wikipedia a great place for information? <laughs> this may be the better question in my no, mind. No, no, I want to ask it that way because there are gatekeepers in theological education that say there's a certain type of education necessary for leadership in the church because we can assure the level of its accuracy, of its orthodoxy, of its historical pertinence, of, and whatever, right? Like, you need theological education because you're getting access through this professional institution that we've stamped with approval, and they are experts at what they do, i.e. professors of theology with PhDs, and that is necessary for access to a certain body of knowledge. And I'm here to say, I get that, and I absolutely loved my theological education, but I also know that they've done data analysis on Wikipedia, and it's, gosh darn it, super accurate. So the democratic construction of professional resources, for lack of better terms, has the potential of actually being really accurate. Some would argue more accurate than those produced by professionals. Pause. Other question. <laughs> Is the Khan Academy an effective educational institution? Mm. From personal experience, it, it, no. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I mean, my experience with it was in the year on our sabbatical, and my boys did Khan Academy for you know, that year. And it was, I, I was surprised. I was surprised how well uh, it educated them now. Uh, yeah. Yeah. The, the, interesting, the, the intersection between that question and this conversation, of course, is that you have, both, in both those questions, you have a suggestion that the democratization of both the creation of verifiable information and the democratization of the access of reliable information, at the very least... We're at the precipice of it entirely being reevaluated. Some would say we're way behind. <laughs> you, if you're not embracing Wikipedia as an accurate resource and you're not, you're not fully gung-ho uh, you know, about the type of education that you can access through the Khan Academy, you're 20 years behind. And all I'm here to all, all I, the reason I ask those is because 
the people that are the strongest champions of needing a theological education necessarily must reckon with the fact that those are both remarkably helpful resources. Now, what do those resources look like? Democratization of creation, democratization of access. What do they look like as it relates to theology, the practice of ministry, sacramental, sacramental embodiment, right? Like, we're already behind in imagining entirely different types of institutions. And if I back up and say, well, what if one of my kids is called to the ministry? How would I direct him? Would I send him to a theological, you know, a theological institution like, I don't know, Northwest Nazarene University or Seattle Pacific University or something like that? I actually want to go take classes at those, at those institutions. Their future success in ministry is not contingent on them going. It's not. Not if I'm honest with, the, with what I, how I would answer those two earlier questions. There has to be. The church needs there to be alternative theological educational paths to produce the kinds of leaders that are even aware of the world that we live in, let alone of a certain sort of moral stature, of a certain type of convictional orientation or something like that. And then here's a cheap shot. Since I've only bounced off the surface of the conversation, I might as well just continue on with a, a, a cheap shot from afar. What has the news taught us about the moral integrity of those that have been theologically trained lately? That they don't have any. So there is an entire other stream here that must be swam in. And that is theological education has to have, must morally develop leaders in a different kind of way. And I'm not, I, no stab at those institutions that I either attended or that are close to us in our region. No, no stab at them. But I will say, are we missing this part of theological education, which requires, a di must, demands a different kind of model that those that come out would have a different moral compass? I think, I think we have to be asking that. Right. Anyhow, for me, that's just the, I mean, that's the very beginning, right? Yeah. I think if I, that, that, that just, that brings up so much. The complexity of it is very important. I think we have to acknowledge not only, like you said, the news and what it talks about moral, I mean, but even the concepts of like, you know, whatever, if, if, if I have an, if I have, if we build a great youth group, the kids will stay Christian when they get to become adult, and then 82% of them or something end up not in the church, you know, later on based on studies, or or like when you even look at it, you know, the the reality of, you know, Christian universities, and, and then they move into your area, and do they even go to church, you know, and how what percentage of kids are staying in the church after going, and so the concepts of like, do, does this education really matter? Um, it's, it's the complexity of walking life. And so I, man, I hear you in that because it's like, it's so, there's so much of like our boys are going to walk. I only say that because I know I've been around Josiah's boy and then obviously, um, our boys the most. So, but our kids, they're going to walk the journey. There's, there's no guarantee if, if they grow up like we're raising them or if they grew up like I grew up or if they go to a Nazarene university or not, or if they go to a seminary and get theological education or not, none of that is 
we, we see that it doesn't necessarily give a straight line, straight arrow line, you know, to what we're creating the per people we want to create. No, because even in that creation or that supposed straight arrow line, they all tend to walk their own journey and end up at very different places. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, and so I, yeah, it's so, man, it's just, so then, so then I go back to what you were saying about Wikipedia and Khan Academy, and it's true. I mean, like, it's the ability for the kids to learn how to learn, right? To learn how to, and if I was to put it in the Christian context, to learn how to s sense the Spirit of God with them um, and in them, that really, after that, it doesn't really matter what you do <laughs> or where you go, because if you can learn the concept of sensitivity to the, the presence of Christ and listening, and whether that be listening through other people, through traditional education or Wikipedia, or through creation itself, that becomes your teacher, right? Uh, yeah, I think the, the Khan Academy Wikipedia example is, is brilliant because, I mean, I actually want my kids to have worked with Khan Academy, but I think it's more specifically like learning styles and, you know, attention deficit disorders and things of that nature. Um, but the, the decentralization of it or the, you know, the gorilla... <laughs> The gorilla-ness of Wikipedia and Khan Academy, I think, are what are so intriguing about those examples. Pisani, uh, there's a there's there's not this power hierarchy institutional thing. It's it's a very organic grassroots effort, and the fact that you can measure its accuracy is very compelling as well. I mean, I feel like I've heard that before. It does spark some sort of memory in my mind, but it does call into question some things for me personally. Uh, just learning styles. You know, I'm married to a nurse and she is really good at classroom learning. She excels at it. She's doing her master's right now. And even with four kids and a house being remodeled and being married to me, she's probably going to have a, a 4.0 in a very, you know, advanced medical uh, master's program, which is ridiculous. And kudos to her. Um, I was not a really good classroom learner. And so I was always the one trying to find as many internships as I could find while I was in my undergraduate. And then I additionally, and this is, I'm going to out myself. We're going to lose all credibility. So sorry, fellas. I didn't go to seminary because I just yeah. could, I could, I mean, right? Like I, you have to explain the big words to me sometimes because I didn't go and have that higher level of learning because exactly what, what Wardlaw is saying, I wanted to get into the actual ministry world. And I knew intrinsically that I was going to learn more from trial and error and being mentored and shown how to do it a certain way and then evaluating and, and so on and so forth. And I've always been intrigued by, you know, I, I have a pretty diverse family, so there's a lot of Catholics and there's a lot of, you know, there's agnostics, there's, you know, there's high church, low church, no church, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on. But uh, I had opportunity to talk to someone who almost became a priest and like, there's an actual residency program for priests. They get an undergraduate, they get a master's, but then they also do an actual residency where every rite and ritual that a priest may be expected to do is done alongside of an actual veteran priest, which was so intriguing to me because, you know, for Catholics, everything is fairly cut and dry. You know exactly what you're doing. It's been established for a long time. And so all of the things that may be expected of you are done in a residency sort of a way. You live it, breathe it, and do it alongside of someone who's done it for a long time. 
And so in that model, there's a bunch of different learning styles that might benefit at different phases of the education, but it's fairly well-rounded. Uh, so it's just an intriguing thing to me because I think part of the issue, though, is that we aren't Catholic and things change and we try to adapt and move and, and shift. And so the, the conundrum faced, facing the church today is not just what will church look like to gather tomorrow. It's what does it look like to equip pastors to be able to lead these things in the future? So just super fascinating. Yeah. The uh, a, a household name, I think, in our, in our circles is, uh, has nothing to, do with, nothing to do with theology, but he's fairly popular, and that's Seth Godin. Um, and he's like one of the uh, you know, most widely read and well-known and referenced experts on marketing. Um, and, but his most famous, I believe his most famous resource, um, to be more specific, his most famous video online is actually one of his fir first recorded keynote um, presentations. It's old, but it has made a trillion rounds on the internet and it's actually about education. And he says, it's, we don't ask the questions. We ought not ask the questions. How do we do it better? What are our goals? How do we polish off the processes? How do we bring more, you know, how do we str strategically sort of engage more kids with less work? These are our own questions. The most fundamental question in education we must ask is what is education for? And if, and it, and it, the reason it's it's like one a classic internet sensation like some some of them some of the sensations are sensational and that's why they're sensational some internet sensations are just phenomenally simple and billions of people connect with it and i think that's the case with his and so we you know we we have to listen and and then recycle the question which is what is theological education for beginning at the end with the type of leadership we are looking for in the 21st century necessarily changes the kind of conversation we have as it relates to amending and reforming the processes of theological education. And I don't know if we've been honest enough about who we even want as the leaders and what we want them to be able to do when they lead in a church content, in a social context that we have yet done our homework to quite understand yet. Right? There's like so much homework we have to do before we can even ask the first question that gets us into the question, the, the, the fundamental questions about theological education, right? And the, just a sort of like a, you know, a lob from afar as it relates to what theological education is for. I mean, I thought it was for biblical literacy. I, I literally, like if I were to force myself to distill it down, I'd say theological education was to make people biblically literate in a, in a pushing the level of expertise, right? It would probably take more education, you know, to get a PhD in the New Testament to really know ancient languages, etc. Biblical literacy with a proficiency to translate into layman's terms, layperson's terms. I know so many church leaders that are theologically educated and not biblically literate. So, you know, I'm just wondering, like, what is it for? And work backwards from there. That's a, I'll take that as a personal challenge. I'm gonna... What What did he say? What was the, was there just like a, a takeaway from that video that you can remember or no? 
There is. If if I remember, it's been years since I've seen it, but if I remember correctly, it's um, Brian Brian touched on it. It's to teach people how to critically think and how to learn. Right. And I would add, I, I've I've followed Seth's work for Godin's work for a while, and I, I sort of touch in here and there. And I would add to that, and he would probably add to that after the fact, and a well of curiosity. Right. So critical thinking, an appetite or, or understanding your own way, your own learning styles and, an, and a curiosity about the world. Right. And you you put those in a pot and spin them. Right. And you get that's a pretty potent stew for one's own volition towards continued education, you know, which maybe challenges some of the gatekeeping tendencies, which focus more on what to think theologically instead of how to think theologically. Yeah, and I think, I mean, imagine, so th- th- someone said to me, I, we, we talked about when I was in, in school, and I think it was in seminary, um, and I took a two-year gap between my undergrad and then going back to seminary. And there was, there was a conversation about the length and the amount of time, and someone was talking about that just the amount of time it wasn't that it needed to be done that long, but that you needed time within it to try it on, like as you were given knowledge. And I, and I think like, what if that's where I think practically around leadership development, especially in, in, in an, I won't even say an urban setting, although that's, it is my setting, but in, in a context, in a context, community you know, the opportunity to try on uh, knowledge <laughs> and w- then what it looks like in praxis, you know, and to fail at it only for you not to be excommunicated, but just pick up that, you know, <laughs> whatever that shirt and and put and wash it and put it back on a different way. You know, I don't know. Or realize you were actually trying to wear your pants as a shirt. I, you know, I mean, it just, you, you the analogy just, breaks down of course but it's it's just like you have to there has to be the opportunity um to walk into it um because that's that's all and then those wells of curiosity just allow you to become the life learner and 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 then it just continues and then hopefully there's wealth of people speaking into your lives um or not even speaking into your life they're just speaking and you get you get to listen and then take something out of it because you're curious. Uh, I think those are those are all key. And in so many ways, that has been the historical church. Uh, if you strip it down, especially, uh, I would almost say, I don't know this, but pre-modernism where we had to structure things so tightly, uh, I almost think it was, there was so many times in which the communities that was that was the church. There's so much push uh, in theological education towards an increased emphasis on apprenticeships and field education because everyone's aware. That, I mean that that it matters too, and that cares. Everyone's aware of the shortage at the shortcomings of classroom education, right? Like there's got to be hands on. It, there's got to be experience. There's got to be, as Brian said, practicing 
trying out new ideas because this this sort of incarnational faith we have is an embodiment right like at the very least our leaders should have the freedom um and the gentle oversight and encouragement to try this stuff out as they encounter new you know sort of world shattering concepts that are very much within the tradition of the church that we never hear about because we're from the country church in nowhere eastern washington or iowa or wherever right like or northern california like i was um and and so there's this sort of like apprenticeship that's so necessary for in theological education but but apprenticeship breaks down when the previous generation is not educated well so what if you skip an what if you skip what if the church is so far behind in understanding the world for which it is training its leaders that they have missed a generation of passing on the rhythms of life the rhythms of life and the ways of embodiment and the communal expressions of the radical kingdom and now you have this massive chasm this transmitting chasm that doesn't exist like Where's the mentorship that fills that gap or the apprenticeship opportunities? And we've discussed this in other ways where we said, where do you send an intern when they, do you send them to a traditional church when by time they get through all of the processes, there are no more churches like that? That's asking the same question, but in a different way. Where's the apprenticeship model in theological education, the emphasis in field education when the placements don't exist that model what ministry tomorrow looks like and that i think is why we're feeling so much pressure in and around this conversation is because we're left with some of the assumptions about transitional models that we've had that we could expect that themselves are breaking down which is one of those assumptions is the generation above me will help me along <laughs> because they get it you know, or at least they can have the perspective to see the transitions. To bring that full circle, just for our previous conversations. And this has to do with those economic systems. So like what, what we're trying to do, I talked to an educational institution who were interested in sending students, but they wanted us to pay the students and part of the students' education fees. And I'm like, well, then your students will only go to big churches. If that if if that's your model, so the ec the whole economic system just punches you in the face if you're looking at the future <laughs> of ministry because it just it just kills you. Uh, so these kids are learning it in a classroom, and then they're expected to go do field, and they're only able to go to churches that are fit with an economic system that can pay them and the institution and the university. Uh, and you're like, okay, that means nothing new. Uh, so uh, because we're just not backed. Uh, so, let's, anyway. let's let's end on something real personal if you're willing to you still in student debt no is it recent like were you able to pay it off recently or have you been in student debt at some point yeah i had student my wife and i had student debt but we uh we actually committed to it and we paid off 50 grand in two and a half years uh when we were first married dang what about you ryan i i'm lucky to not be in student debt and um uh never was that far in student debt relative to my colleagues 
I was in student debt up to two years ago, and at one point, my total accumulated student debt balance was six figures. Just, we can end there. Do you want to know how cheap the Khan Academy is? (laughs) (laughs) While it might feel like we're really good at pointing out issues we have with institutions, there are a couple things that I would like to leave you with as we wrap up this episode. The first is this. Much like our own frustrations with the one-size-fits-all pastoral approach, there is more than one way to educate the next-generation pastor. What a gift it might be to explore the possibilities, to cater to learning styles, to offer opportunities to practice, and to embolden curiosity. The second is this. It's expensive, and very practically speaking, pastoring doesn't pay well. And while some denominations help subsidize that education, ours is not one of them. So if you're a pastor or on a church board or you're looking to hire a young 20-something to do ministry in your congregation, consider what it actually costs them not just to live, but to spend their time doing ministry when they could be paid much better doing almost anything else. And for a final thought, I leave you with this. We often struggle with the tendency of wanting to have the answers before we start a journey. But in our current circumstances, we don't have that luxury. When it comes to having the conversations we want to have on this podcast, we know that we don't know what's next. But what we cannot do is let that unknown paralyze us into inaction. It is better to fail over and over again trying to figure out what is best to do next than to do nothing at all. Join us on our next episode as we interview our second traditional Sunday morning pastor and have conversations regarding power and influence and the temptation that even pastors face dealing with these sorts of things. Hear their thoughts on guerrilla ministry and and whether this is something they would like to partner with us in in the future or if it's something that they think is silly and not worth engagement with in the first place. Thank you for listening to today's episode, and if you would be so kind, we would ask that you would rate, review, and subscribe, as it helps others discover this podcast as well. I have been your host, Josiah, and this has been the Gorilla Pastors Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.